Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. And the topical discussion this week is based around an article that we read in The Economist a few days ago. And the, the subject of the article is IKEA moving on to the high street. And we've talked about IKEA. We've talked about the founder of IKEA on the show previously. We've also talked about the evolution of the high street on the show as well. And and this little article just sparked a, a bit of interest in both of us. So we, we thought we'd, we'd bring it out into the open and share it with you lovely listeners. So... Tottenham Court Road, you, most people will have heard of Tottenham Court Road. Uh, I've just um, had a quick look at the history of it. It existed during um, the time of the Doomsday Book and probably um, further beyond that. And it's well-known road, which is, um, I suppose, popular for selling electronics and white goods at the moment, but a bit run down. In fact, the article, I've got to say, is a bit scathing of Tottenham Court Road. It describes it as a little love street of furniture stores in central London, made even more drab by boarded up shops and sale signs plastered across the windows. Now, since October, IKEA have been there. Yes, you heard right. IKEA, the, the gods of the enormous, slightly out of town, shall we say suburban, shopping hell or shopping heaven depending on your outlook <laughs> um, but provider also of meatballs at the end as a prize and ice cream and ice cream meatballs and ice cream um, they've got a shop in Tottenham Court Road which seems as the article described it topsy-turvy indeed it, it is it's turning the world upside down what are IKEA doing in a small retail space in the centre of a city Especially everybody else is closing down. As they say, the um, all the boarded up shops and sale signs. And I, and I don't think it's just in London. Is it, you get that uh, everywhere. Yeah, I think that was the first thing in the article. You know, it, it, of course, we talk a lot locally, you know, our, our local towns and cities, loads of boarded up shops. And it really, for some reason, I just thought, oh, crikey, yeah, this is actually happening in the West End of London, you know, it, it's not just exclusive to small market towns or, um, you know, this part of the country. It's it's true of everywhere. It's just the, the, the retail landscape has changed massively and is changing massively. And it's stuff like this that just really highlights that the high street as we know it or knew it is a thing of the past. And I, I remember we talked about the fact that um, online retail is, is really is what's disrupted um, the mm. retail shopping, certainly the high street, so much. Yet it's on the back of this that IKEA are actually opening this store. Yeah, they still yeah they they're focusing on their online sales, and th- this the these little stores that they're opening they're calling them planning studios. Now, I haven't been in one, obviously, and they all seem to be in the south of the country at the moment. There's only a few of them. But I am. You could go to the Paris one. Oh! Should we call it research? I think. <laughs> I th- yeah, yeah. Sorry, must go. Got to book a flight. Um, yeah, so they're, they're planning studios. So I imagine that there's an element of. Um, I'm, I guess there will be some computers in there so that there's also that ability to. to perhaps do some virtual planning of you know what your room might look like but then I guess it's also that you can sit on a sofa before you buy it um it yeah it's and it goes back to I think 
when we've talked about this before, a much more experiential way of shopping because they don't sell anything in these planning studios. And that so that's a high street shop that doesn't sell anything. <laughs> it's supporting an online offering. Yes, giving people the opportunity to actually... Um, touch the mm, goods. Mm. I, I sometimes struggle with buying online uh, clothes or furniture because I want to know what it feels yeah. like. Uh, and also, I'm not very good at visualising the end product. So if you just show me a, a sofa in a white background, I sometimes struggle to see it in context. And I think I'm sure there are plenty of people like me. So to actually see it in, um, in a space which is made to look like a living room or a kitchen mm, or a dining mm. room... Which is what they do in the upstairs of Ikea, yes. isn't it? Those like interminable arrows that take you around yes. all these rooms. Yeah. And that, I think that's what they're trying to replicate so that people can then go on and actually buy their stuff online. I like the idea. So, and what I liked in the article was that the head of retail for Ikea, and I'm not going to insult this person with... Um, with trying to pronounce his name, but he said that the company's strong brand and balance sheet gives it the freedom to have a test and fail approach. Now, they don't know that this is going to work, but even though their profits have been falling recently, IKEA have got the cash and and the courage mm -hmm. to actually try something out to see if it'll work. They're running with this idea. And I don't think a lot of retail stores in that situation have necessarily got the same resources to hand, particularly if they've um, over-expanded, as has been the case with a lot of stores on the high street. IKEA are full of new ideas for how to transform their business. I mean, in 2017, they bought a company called TaskRabbit. Have okay. you heard of that one? I haven't, no. So it's... Um, it was a, a startup company, uh, a gig economy it's described as startup company. So presumably the, the business would hire people to come and do this for them, which is to put furniture up. Okay. So if you if you bought your furniture from IKEA, oh, but wow. you couldn't be bothered with the Allen key and the and the um, <laughs> and the row, <laughs> then you could hire somebody who TaskRabbit presumably subcontract to come and put it up for you. And IKEA went went and bought that company. Brilliant. So they really are thinking about ways to turn their business around. And uh, in the articles, I also points out that IKEA are really well placed with the distribution network because yeah. they have got the big stores yeah, yeah. that are located conveniently yeah. in suburban areas. So in, in terms of delivery, they can get the delivery speeds that um, the customers are expecting. Yeah. They're the, the pondering on it. It's a bit like the flip side of Argos. So Argos has a high street presence. I mean, I know they go out of town, but, you know, high street presence, all their stock is hidden away and you, you don't see it. You look at a picture and you buy it. And this is the flip side. Ikea, all their space will be display space. They won't hold any stock. You go and look at the, look at the stock and you can't buy it. But then they'll deliver it but to you. But then they'll deliver it, yeah. So it's, 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 it's like the complete opposite of, of Argos. And... When, we, when I was researching this, I, I came across um, a publication that, as I'm not a retailer, uh, I've not encountered before, um, but it's the Retail Gazette. So um, if any retailers are listening, um, I imagine that you read this frequently. Um, but but it, 
there was an article that caught my eye. So they also featured this article around um, IKEA and and this on this high street presence. But I found an article, um, and we were just talking about it off air before we came on. Um, Six thousand five hundred Clark's shoe shop staff are going to teach children literacy skills as they fit their shoes. And I thought... No, I couldn't have guessed that. You couldn't make it up, could you? So I had to read. I had to read the story, as you might imagine. Apparently, there is a government initiative uh, to improve early literacy skills. And Clark's, WH Smith's and Lego, amongst others, have signed up to the scheme. And essentially, what's going to happen is when children go into Clark's stores, staff will be trained to help to develop the child's vocabulary and social skills while they're in store. Now, the first thing that I think, the cynic in me, is does that just mean that they're going to be saying, can you shut up, can you sit down and can you stop playing with that display (laughs) unit? Which is what hopefully, you know, most mums and dads and, and grandparents would be doing if that was what was going on. But it's that idea that we're putting the onus on people whose specialism is is managing retail and selling retail they're not teachers uh it just completely fried my brain <laughs> i i will be interested to learn more about that one uh, it's a great initiative in that anything that any of us in society can do to help a child's literacy you know by talking to them on the bus or you engaging them in conversation but i don't think it's if you're going to buy a pair of shoes um you're going to buy a pair of shoes it's I, I, I don't know it's just so anyway and there's a whole host of um equally interesting stories in the retail gazettes <laughs> <laughs> let me just end on this one with to do with ikea mm. so i read about the uh, the paris shop which is opening soon and another good reason why we need to visit but it, it seems really reminiscent let me tell you what the paris shop is aiming to do to attract local visitors more frequently offering frequent range changes, fresh food and events. Now, what does that sound like to you, Heather? Oh, sounds like a high street. <laughs> it, yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. All I of like those a things. Market, a community. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's really, really strange that we might be coming full circle. But IKEA and presumably other large companies are are perhaps recognizing this and as we mentioned before I think when we were talking about Mary Porter's Uh a few weeks ago is that people are looking for the experience yeah not just the shopping and and you don't tend to get the same experience when you're doing online shopping Hmm. so we'll keep an eye on that yeah if we can manage a trip to Paris we will let you know and if you do find your way on to Tottenham Court Road and into the IKEA um, store then please let us know what you think we save us a trip So I've got a couple of quick snippets of news that popped into my inbox this morning from Business Insider. The first one is, is if you've still got a Google Plus account, where have you been? But if you have, Google are going to start deleting them and they're going to delete the accounts and the pages on April the 2nd. So on that date, Google Plus accounts and pages will become inaccessible to users. You'll lose your content, photos and videos from your archives. So just be warned, if you've got any old material on there that you want to keep, I'm sure not many people are still actually using their Google Plus account. 
Did you ever use? I did. Yeah, did I, I started to because everybody said it was the future. Yeah, but it, it didn't actually pan out that way, did it? No, no. But uh, yeah, if you still got some stuff, it might be that you've not used it for a while, but you might still have some uh, material on there that you yeah. want to recover. Yeah. Okay. The other interesting thing is, if you're into your phones, I hear that Apple is preparing new iPhones with 3D cameras. So it's be the largest and most expensive phone to replace the iPhone XS Max. It will have a three camera module on its back. This is according to Bloomberg. Wow. It's too hot for me, that is. Yes. I, I like a nice small... I'm not quite a down Nokia 3410, yeah. but I do like, like something that just sort of yes. does the phone call thing. Yeah. My son's got a phone at the moment that does everything, but the microphone doesn't work when you make an actual phone call. But oh. it doesn't seem to bother him because he never, never makes, makes a phone, a phone call. call. <laughs> Why would you phone him? Yeah. Does it work? Does it work if he's using um, WhatsApp, FaceTime, FaceTime, yeah, videos, yeah. records? Yeah, but it just won't. In telephone mode, it doesn't work. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> And finally, because it's the 31st of January, and if you didn't already know, where have you been? It is the self-assessment deadline. And as always, HM Revenue and Customs have published some excuses that they've received from people. And here's a list of the strangest excuses for missing the deadline from last year. So one, um, my mother-in-law is a witch and put a curse on me. I'm too short to reach the post box. I was just too busy. My first maid left, my second maid stole from me, and my third maid was very slow to learn. Uh, or we've got our junior member of staff registered our client in self-assessment by mistake because they were not wearing their glasses. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I like this one. My boiler had broken and my fingers were too cold to type. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I, I feel for them. I really do. I feel for the accountants who have been working all hours to meet meet the deadline. So if, you, if that's you, then thank you. <laughs> and if those accountants have put through these dubious expense claims, ah. um, then uh, they're, they're perhaps not the accountant for you. Uh, so a few unconvincing items uh, that have been submitted as expense claims. A carpenter claiming £900 for a 55-inch TV and soundbar to help him to price his jobs. <laughs> of course. Um £40 on extra woolly underwear for five years. What? I don't know. £40? Maybe they're a shepherd. £40? Yeah. For five years? Oh. Yeah, they've claimed that five Five. years on the run, yeah. It doesn't sound like an awful lot, actually, It's not a lot of underwear, is it? And if it's actual (laughs) real wool, that's quite pricey. £756 for pet dog insurance. Right. And that clearly wasn't related to their business because that was turned down. A music subscription, so you can listen to music while you work. Nice. And a family holiday to Nigeria. Maybe they were going to see that prince who had all that money to put in the bank account. Oh, yes, yes, (laughs) yes, it was a business trip. (laughs) Now, apparently, HM Revenue and Customs have put all of these top excuses and top expenses on videos on YouTube. I watched one. It's not worth it. (laughs) It's not worth video. No, just read the list. This week, we're reviewing a book that I had for my birthday, and it's it had been on my wish list for a little while, and my mother-in-law, rather 
beautifully will go through my wish list and tidy up anything that hasn't been bought for me over the years. And this one's been on there for a few months. It's called Fish Can't Climb Trees. Capitalise on your brain's unique wiring to improve the way you learn and communicate. And it's by a lady called Helen Connor, spelt H-E-L-Y-N, and Connor is C-O-N-N-E-R-R, just a little bit of a different spelling to what you might expect. Now, it's titles taken from a quote, which I think is Albert Einstein, but it might be one of those urban myths where it's attributed to Albert Einstein and he never actually said it. However, it is a brilliant quote. Everyone is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. And that's a quote that I've been aware of for years, as I'm sure you have. Mm, Yeah. And uh, I really connect with it, especially you're in communication. I'm training you actually recognising that everybody has a different way of learning and perceiving the world around them is a really important part of communicating yeah, and training. So it starts off by, by looking at the different styles as, and they're all presented as a character. They're um, rather cute little characters. They've all got a name such as Flash the Pioneer and um, Exec the Achiever. Uh, is it sonar the intuitive I'll go through some of them in a bit more detail but it's looking at each of the characters inherent mental traits and basic motivations and they're discussed in a lot of details and then following up with suggestions on how their learning ability can be enhanced now my understanding of this book is it it follows on from a book that Helen wrote uh, helping adults so the parents and teachers of children to understand how their children are learning and seeing the world so that they can communicate and teach them better. So this this is moving on now so that you can use this with your family, your friends, your colleagues. And I like it. It's a clearly well-researched book. However, I wasn't quite sure I, I could place myself in any of the styles and any of the characters. I thought I did. Um, I, I thought I had put myself into one category and then I went on to read a little bit further and the initial characteristics were there for me, but the learning styles weren't quite the same. But then I read a wonderful bit which said, if you are reading this book and you can't fit yourself in, into any of the categories, then you're probably this, which is Flash the Pioneer. I went, oh, I must be Flash the Pioneer. But Then I asked Heather what she thought I was, and she didn't think I was Flash the Pioneer at all. You you thought I was two other things. And then I read them and thought, oh, yes, I could be that. And I could be that as well. So maybe I'm just really bad at judging my own attributes. (laughs) Maybe I just don't like being put in a box. Or maybe that, you know, the categories don't work for me. Because with each learning type come along two family groups. So that you've got initiator and sustainer or adapter and you can either be a member of fire air earth or water and I I think for me that the power of this is understanding that actually people do think differently that everybody's got their own unique strengths and abilities and actually don't judge them because they they different to you you know, if the, if there's criteria that are different to your criteria and about the, what they're interested in, then it doesn't make them wrong. It just makes them have a different approach yeah. to you. So there are is a section in here which suggests how you can get along with each other. So even if you don't 
quite place yourself as one of the characters. I think there can be value in trying to see, maybe if there's a person that you find it difficult to get on with, trying to see some of the traits in some of the other characters there and trying to understand how that just makes it different to you. And maybe you could find a way that you could um, communicate with them better. And then she goes into uh, the final chapter is looking at the theory that underpins the model. And it's a bit astrological. So it places in an astrological context. Now, I understand that her um, background is physics and nuclear chemistry. And it was while she was researching nuclear chemistry and radio pharmaceuticals that she began to develop an interest in energy medicine and astrology. So she's put her scientific skills and abilities into research in this book and you can really tell that it's very solidly researched and and very well presented but uh, I think it lost me a little bit at the end with the astrological references however when I read a review on this a lady who was very heavily into astrology said it it's a bit lightweight for astrology and she said it was more of a self-help book than a book on astrology. That's interesting. So I was thinking, oh, it's a bit heavy on astrology. And um, so I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I'd be interested to know if you've read the book and what your take on it. You know, if you find yourself really easily identifying with one of the characters or, or whether you struggled like me. Heather, what about you? Did you find that you could identify with one or other of the characters? No. Um, I don't own the book. Um, there are quite a few resources uh, on the internet. If you if you Google, there, there are various articles and reviews, etc. Um, I personally found I didn't like the characters. I'm a very visual person. I know that much. I didn't oh, well, like they were cartoon characters. Yeah, for the, them, weren't these they? little yeah. drawings. I didn't like them. There was, I didn't look at them. And normally with something like that, you think, oh, I want to be that one. Well, I didn't want to be any of them. You know, so I wasn't drawn to any of the Im- imagery. And then I then neither was I drawn to any of the titles, the labels, the names that these characters had got because they just didn't resonate with me at all. Um, so, yeah, you know, this is my, this is exactly my territory. This is the kind of thing that I work with. And yet I couldn't, I couldn't drum up enough interest to really get embedded in it. it yeah. You know, and... I don't mind astrology, you know, I think there are elements of it that, you know, are really, really interesting and, and potentially valid. But it it seemed to be, and excuse the pun here, it was neither fish nor fowl. <laughs> it didn't it, it didn't sit in either camp. It wasn't... And that review was just highlighted yeah, that as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not astrology and it's not based on... Um, re- I'm not saying it's not based on research. It's not based on a body of work that evidences... The, you know these yeah, different characteristic types. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, I didn't feel that I want. I needed to invest a lot of my time in it. But what I did invest some of my time in, if I may, um, is finding out um, that there are some fish that can climb trees. Are there indeed? Oh, there are indeed. Yes, there are three. Uh, one is the mangrove killifish, uh, found in Latin America and in the, the Caribbean. Mangroves. <laughs> in the mangroves, yes. There's a climbing gourami. Um, from uh, hail from Africa and Southern Asia, and there's a climbing catfish. Oh. Uh, a member of the catfish family can actually grasp with its pelvic fin and climb rocks and possibly trees. So, I don't wish to be 
um, pedantic. Pedantic, but <laughs> <Much>. uh, but. <laughs> so, do we have to suggest that she changes the title to "Most Fish Can't Climb Trees"? Yes. Yeah. There may be some fish that can climb trees. So, although we can't wholeheartedly recommend it, I think that the main learning for this from for, for me is is that we're all different, and yeah. if we all developed an understanding and tolerance of these differences the world would just be a better place just as a process you know, whether it's this book or, or or whatever just the idea that you hold a mirror up to yourself and start to understand the way that you tick and the way that you like to process information can help you to then be more accepting of, of other people but i would say don't buy the book but google it okay Google it and then see if it's your sort of mm. thing. Have a look at some of the, the writing that Helen has done before. If you do want to buy the book, then you would help us out to keep the um, podcast and the website um, live. Um, you might be giving about two pence towards the cause. If you go and click on the link that will be on our blog for this show at our website, which is the business.community. Looking at uh, business um, celebrities, owners, gurus, leaders. leaders. We haven't said guru for we a while. We haven't said guru for a while. I do like a, I do like the occasional guru. Um, we were drawn to the person that we're talking about this week following an article that we spotted in The Guardian uh, about the highest paying taxpayers in the UK. We've talked in the past about um, Sir James Dyson. He's been one of our business leaders. And we've also talked about um, the lady, Denise Coates, her name had a mental block then, um, from Bet365. And so the Guardian ran an article saying that uh, Stephen Rubin, the owner of JD Sports, that well-known high street sports shop, paid the most tax in the UK last year. He paid £181 million. Um, and he wasn't the highest earner because we've already mentioned that Denise Coates Denise was. Denise Coates yeah. was, yes, yes. And just to put a little bit of context on that, so he was £181 million. Uh, Sir James Dyson, £127 million. Um, Sestelios from EasyJet, £20.7 million. Um, and we even, Wow, that's a big drop. It's a it? massive drop, yeah. And Mike Ashley, founder of Sports Direct, £30 million. So, um, and the Beckhams, wow, they're... They're, you know, they're so out of the loop. They paid twelve point seven million. So, uh, to give it some context, that is an awful lot of money. So you start to think, well, okay, you know, how, how how does this work? You know, they, basically JD Sports. It's got to be more to this. And so that's why we thought we'd have a look and see if we could find out a bit about Robert Stephen Rubin, uh, which makes things a little bit complicated because there's another Robert Rubin who is a politician in the USA. Yes, yeah, so I, I kept stumbling across yeah, Robert Rubin. I got very confused at one point. But basically, um, Robert Stephen Rubin, or Stephen Rubin, was born in December 1937. Makes he's, him 81. Makes him 81. Uh, he's the chairman and co-owner, alongside members of his family, of the Pentland Group, uh, which is a holding company for a number of sporting goods uh, companies. And they made their biggest money when they acquired a 55% stake in Reebok in 1981. And you think, okay, that's fine. They paid $77,500 for it. Ten years later, this is Reebok USA, ten years later, 
they had turned that $77,500 into $770 million. That's one heck of a return. So, uh, not surprising that you're going to be um, you're going to be up there with the big bucks. He his parents founded the business Pentland in 1932, and they hold, they were wholesalers of shoes. But he joined in 1959 and um, and took the business in a, in a slightly different yeah, direction. It was called the Liverpool Shoe Company then, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, which is. Yeah, I don't know why they changed the name to Pentland. Maybe if I read a little bit more. But they own brands like Speedo, Berghaus, and, of course, a majority stake in uh, JD Sports. What did you find out about him, Tracy? It's very hard to find out a lot about him. He's he's really sort of below the radar mm. in a lot of these things. So um, some of the standard stuff that you can read on all the websites, um, like, like Forbes, for example, which... Um, Interestingly enough, just focus on the very rich people there. So he is, his real time worth today was £2.2 billion. That's generally an estimate from Forbes. And um, they've got him as owning an estimated 49% of Pentland. So I went on to have a look at Company's House and he's actually listed as being involved in 16 organisations, 16 current appointments that were in the region of 30 that he's resigned from or, or the companies folded. But um, up there is Pentland Securities Limited, Crime Stoppers Trust, Holocaust Educational Trust, and then a few names that you recognise like uh, Speedo International Limited, Berghaus Limited, LS Limited, and a number of different holding companies and securities companies. And I found out that he graduated as um, from University College London in 1958 with a degree in law, and he was going to be a barrister. But then he also stood for the House of Commons. Um, he stood um, as a parliamentary candidate for the Liberal Party in 1959, which, if you do the maths, places him at 21 at that point, which wow. seems awfully young. He didn't succeed, and it was at that point that he went to join his parents, and um, he he joined the business and then pretty much transformed the company. He renamed it to Pentland Group in 1973. I didn't find out why or what the reasoning mm. was behind Pentland Group. And they essentially, they own brands. So as you've already mentioned, um, and a number of these brands are, are incredibly well known. And they're also the majority owner of JD Sports. So his son um, is now, chief, um, is now um, running Pentland. Andrew, there was a bit of controversy I noticed um, in the newspapers about about his son actually going and doing that. But if his son is perfectly qualified and experienced in the business, then why not? And um, he's also got an OBE. So he was awarded an OBE in 2003 for services to business and human rights. So that was all I could find on him himself. So I, I went to have a look at the website. So the website is pentlandbrands.com and it gives a little bit of an insight into the business. Uh, proud to be uh, a family business. And they also talk about their strategy being to grow a portfolio of brands over a long term so that people see, buy and love our brands. And they do that by investing in people, platforms and a brand portfolio 
and they believe that good business is good for business. And they've won six Queen's Awards for Enterprise. Most recently, in 2018, they won the Queen's Award for Enterprise in the international trade category. And also, in 2016, they came 11th in the list of uh, great places to work. So there's an organisation called the Great Place to Work Institute, and they were 11th in the list of best large companies and 16th in the list of best large workplaces in Europe. Now, Heather, you might know more about this than me, but why would they have dropped out? There's no mention of them since 2016. So why is it not a great place to work 2017 and 2018? It could simply be that they didn't enter. Some businesses withdraw themselves from the process just because the amount of time that you need to commit to completing your submission um, and your employees filling in the questionnaire. So Some, maybe they felt like they'd already proved yeah, they'd themselves. Yeah, they proved themselves. Um, sometimes, you know, there might have been a change within the organisation which made them think that it wasn't worth entering. But, um, but of course, we don't know whether they entered and weren't listed or whether they didn't take part. So it, it's a tricky one. But very often, having achieved that badge, um, to invest every year the time and resource might be deemed to not be necessary they might have moved on to something else you know a different badge a different accolade of some sort yeah. we, we, we don't really know so Pentland Group has um, got its headquarters in the UK um, talking to James Dyson it's a mm. bit of the news at the mm. moment of moving mm. uh, headquarters and they employ more than 41,000 people um, its brands are available across 190 countries and it's got, with its retail arm, JD Sports, more than 2,300 standalone shops, annual sales of 6.7 billion US dollars. That's about all mm. I found. Do you know what? I couldn't even find a quote this week. I couldn't find a quote, but I did find there's um, a report that was produced by the Institute for Family Business and uh, the findings of the Family Business Philanthropy and Social Responsibility Inquiry dated June 2009 and our business leader of the week wrote the foreword. So I th there's just one excerpt where he talks about philanthropy and he says, In my experience, a philanthropic and socially responsible company generates benefits not only for its shareholders but for all its stakeholders, which includes employees, suppliers, customers and their wider communities. But additionally, in the case of a family business, it also creates opportunities to strengthen the bonds within the family by providing a focus for wider family engagement that goes beyond shareholder returns. And a lot of the people that we talk about, these large organisations, there is an element of philanthropy in there. Um, and he, he states very clearly the reasons why that's a good idea. So that's all we've got time for this week. If you've got any comments, if you've read the book or you've got anything to say on the topic of the high street and Ikea, if you've been to one of the Ikea shops, mm -hmm. then uh, do let us know. Um, you're welcome to leave a comment on our blog, which is the business.community. Also catch the podcast on there without the music, unfortunately, and also on iTunes and any good streaming service. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.